Chapter Sixteen of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixteen. Devoted. When John Jasper recovered from his fit or swoon, he found himself being tended by Mr. and Mrs. Tope, whom his visitor had summoned for the purpose. His visitor, wooden of aspect, sat stiffly in a chair with his hands upon his knees, watching his recovery. There, you've come too nicely now, sir, said the tearful Mrs. Tope. You were thoroughly worn out, and no wonder. A man, said Mr. Grugius, with his usual air of repeating a lesson, cannot have his rest broken, and his mind cruelly tormented, and his body overtaxed by fatigue, without being thoroughly worn out. I fear I have alarmed you. Jasper apologised faintly, when he was helped into his easy-chair. "'Not at all, I thank you,' answered Mr. Grugius. "'You are too considerate.' "'Not at all, I thank you,' answered Mr. Grugius again. "'You must take some wine, sir,' said Mrs. Tope, "'and the jelly that I had ready for you.' and that you wouldn't put your lips to at noon, though I warned you what would come of it, you know, and you not breakfasted, and you must have a wing of the roast fowl that has been put back twenty times if it's been put back once. It shall all be on table in five minutes, and this good gentleman belike will stop and see you take it. This good gentleman replied with a snort, which might mean yes, or no, or anything, or nothing, and which Mrs. Tope would have found highly mystifying, but that her attention was divided by the service of the table. "'You will take something with me?' said Jasper, as the cloth was laid. "'I couldn't get a morsel down my throat. I thank you,' answered Mr. Grugius. Jasper both ate and drank almost voraciously. Combined with the hurry in his mode of doing it, was an evident indifference to the taste of what he took, suggesting that he ate and drank to fortify himself against other failures of the spirits, far more than to gratify his palate. Mr. Grugius, in the meantime, sat upright, with no expression in his face, and a hard kind of imperturbably polite protest all over him, as though he would have said, in reply to some invitation to discourse, I couldn't originate the faintest approach to an observation on any subject whatever. I thank you. Do you know, said Jasper, when he had pushed away his plate and glass, and had sat meditating for a few minutes, do you know that I find some crumbs of comfort in the communication with which you have so much amazed me. 
"'Do you?' returned Mr. Grugius, pretty plainly adding the unspoken clause. "'I don't. I thank you.' "'After recovering from the shock of a piece of news of my dear boy, so entirely unexpected, and so destructive of all the castles I had built for him, and after having had time to think of it, yes.' "'I shall be glad to pick up your crumbs,' said Mr. Grugius dryly. "'Is there not? Or is there, if I deceive myself, tell me so, and shorten my pain? Is there not, or is there, hope that, finding himself in this new position, and becoming sensitively alive to the awkward burden of explanation, in this quarter and that and the other, with which it would load him, he avoided the awkwardness and took to flight. "'Such a thing might be,' said Mr. Grugius, pondering. "'Such a thing has been. I have read of cases in which people, rather than face a seven days, wonder and have to account for themselves to the idle and impertinent, have taken themselves away, and been long unheard of. "'I believe such things have happened,' said Mr. Grugius, pondering still. "'When I had, and could have, no suspicion,' pursued Jasper, eagerly following the new track, "'that the dear lost boy had withheld anything from me, most of all such a leading matter as this,' What gleam of light was there for me in the whole black sky, when I supposed that his intended wife was here, and his marriage close at hand? How could I entertain the possibility of his voluntarily leaving this place in a manner that would be so unaccountable, capricious, and cruel? But now that I know what you have told me, is there no little chink? through which day pierces? Suppose him to have disappeared of his own act. Is not his disappearance more accountable and less cruel? The fact of his having just parted from your ward is in itself a sort of reason for his going away. It does not make his mysterious departure the less cruel to me, it is true, but it relieves it of cruelty to her. Mr. Grugius could not but assent to this. And even as to me, continued Jasper, still pursuing the new track with ardour, and as he did so, brightening with hope, he knew that you were coming to me. He knew that you were entrusted to tell me what you have told me. If your doing so has awakened a new train of thought in my perplexed mind, it reasonably follows that, from the same premises, he might have foreseen the inferences that I should draw. Grant that he did foresee them, and even the cruelty to me, and who am I, John Jasper, music-master, vanishes. Once more Mr. Grugius could not but assent to this. I have had my distrusts, and terrible distrusts they have been, 
said Jasper. "'But your disclosure, overpowering as it was at first, showing me that my own dear boy had had a great disappointing reservation from me, who so fondly loved him, kindles hope within me. You do not extinguish it when I state it, but admit it to be a reasonable hope. I begin to believe it possible. Here he clasped his hands, that he may have disappeared from among us of his own accord, and that he may yet be alive and well. Mr. Crisparkle came in at the moment, to whom Mr. Jasper repeated, "'I begin to believe it possible that he may have disappeared of his own accord, and may yet be alive and well.' Mr. Crisparkle, taking a seat, and inquiring, "'Why so?' Mr. Jasper repeated the arguments he had just set forth. If they had been less plausible than they were, the good minor canon's mind would have been in a state of preparation to receive them, as exculpatory of his unfortunate pupil. But he, too, did really attach great importance to the lost young man's having been, so immediately before his disappearance, placed in a new and embarrassing relation towards every one acquainted with his projects and affairs, and the fact seemed to him to present the question in a new light. "'I stated to Mr. Sapsey, when we waited on him,' said Jasper, as he really had done, "'that there was no quarrel or difference between the two young men at their last meeting. We all know that their first meeting was unfortunately very far from amicable.' but all went smoothly and quietly when they were last together at my house. My dear boy was not in his usual spirits. He was depressed. I noticed that, and I am bound henceforth to dwell upon the circumstance the more, now that I know there was a special reason for his being depressed, a reason, moreover, which may possibly have induced him to absent himself. "'I pray to heaven it may turn out so!' exclaimed Mr. Crisparkle. "'I pray to heaven it may turn out so!' repeated Jasper. "'You know, and Mr. Grugius should now know likewise, that I took a great prepossession against Mr. Neville Landless, arising out of his furious conduct on that first occasion.' You know that I came to you, extremely apprehensive, on my dear boy's behalf, of his mad violence. You know that I even entered in my diary, and showed the entry to you, that I had dark forebodings against him. Mr. Grugius ought to be possessed of the whole case. He shall not through any suppression of mine be informed of a part of it, and kept in ignorance of another part of it, I wish him to be good enough to understand that the communication he has made to me has hopefully influenced my mind, in spite of its having been, before this mysterious occurrence took place, profoundly impressed against young Landless. This fairness troubled the minor canon much. 
he felt that he was not as open in his own dealing. He charged against himself reproachfully that he had suppressed, so far, the two points of a second strong outbreak of temper against Edwin Drood on the part of Neville, and of the passion of jealousy having, to his own certain knowledge, flamed up in Neville's breast against him. He was convinced of Neville's innocence of any part in the ugly disappearance, and yet so many little circumstances combined so woefully against him, that he dreaded to add two more to their cumulative weight. He was among the truest of men, but he had been balancing in his mind, much to its distress, whether his volunteering to tell these two fragments of truth at this time would not be tantamount to a piecing together of falsehood in the place of truth. However, here was a model before him. He hesitated no longer. Addressing Mr. Grugius as one placed in authority by the revelation he had brought to bear on the mystery, and surpassingly angular Mr. Grugius became when he found himself in that unexpected position, Mr. Crisparkle bore his testimony to Mr. Jasper's strict sense of justice, and expressing his absolute confidence in the complete clearance of his pupil from the least taint of suspicion sooner or later, avowed that his confidence in that young gentleman had been formed, in spite of his confidential knowledge, that his temper was of the hottest and fiercest, and that it was directly incensed against Mr. Jasper's nephew, by the circumstance of his romantically supposing himself to be enamoured of the same young lady. The sanguine reaction manifest in Mr. Jasper was proof even against this unlooked-for declaration. It turned him paler, but he repeated that he would cling to the hope he had derived from Mr. Grugius, and that if no trace of his dear boy were found, leading to the dreadful inference that he had been made away with, he would cherish unto the last stretch of possibility the idea that he might have absconded of his own wild will. Now it fell out that Mr. Crisparkle, going away from this conference still very uneasy in his mind, and very much troubled on behalf of the young man whom he held as a kind of prisoner in his own house, took a memorable night-walk. He walked to Cloisterham Weir. He often did so, and consequently there was nothing remarkable in his footsteps tending that way. But the preoccupation of his mind so hindered him from planning any walk, or taking heed of the objects he passed, that his first consciousness of being near the Weir was derived from the sound of the falling water close at hand. "'How did I come here?' was his first thought, as he stopped. "'Why did I come here?' was his second. Then he stood intently listening to the water, a familiar passage in his reading about airy tongues that syllable men's names rose so unbidden to his ear that he put it from him with his hand, as if it were tangible. It was starlight. The weir was two full miles above the spot to which the young men had repaired to watch the storm. No search had been made up here, 
for the tide had been running strongly down at that time of the night of Christmas Eve, and the likeliest places for the discovery of a body, if a fatal accident had happened under such circumstances, all lay, both when the tide ebbed and when it flowed again, between that spot and the sea. The water came over the weir, with its usual sound on a cold starlit night, and little could be seen of it. Yet Mr. Crisparkle had a strange idea that something unusual hung about the place. He reasoned with himself. What was it? Where was it? Put it to the proof. What sense did it address? No sense reported anything unusual there. He listened again, and his sense of hearing again checked the water coming over the weir, with its usual sound on a cold starlight night. Knowing very well that the mystery with which his mind was occupied might of itself give the place this haunted air, he strained those hawk's eyes of his for the correction of his sight. He got closer to the weir, and peered at its well-known posts and timbers. Nothing in the least unusual was remotely shadowed forth, but he resolved that he would come back early in the morning. The weir ran through his broken sleep all night, and he was back again at sunrise. It was a bright, frosty morning. The whole composition before him when he stood where he had stood last night was clearly discernible in its minutest details. He had surveyed it closely for some minutes, and was about to withdraw his eyes, when they were attracted keenly to one spot. He turned his back upon the weir, and looked far away at the sky, and at the earth, and then looked again at that one spot. It caught his sight again immediately, and he concentrated his vision upon it. He could not lose it now, though it was but such a speck in the landscape. It fascinated his sight. His hands began plucking off his coat, for it struck him that at that spot, a corner of the weir, something glistened, which did not move and come over with the glistening water-drops, but remained stationary. He assured himself of this. He threw off his clothes, he plunged into the icy water, and swam for the spot. Climbing the timbers, he took from them, caught among the interstices by its chain, a gold watch, bearing engraved upon its back, E. D. He brought the watch to the bank, swam to the weir again, climbed it, and dived off. He knew every hole and corner of all the depths, and dived and dived and dived, until he could bear the cold no more. His notion was that he would find the body. He only found a shirt-pin sticking in some mud and ooze. With these discoveries he returned to Cloisterham, and taking Neville Landless with him went straight to the mare. Mr. Jasper was sent for, the watch and shirt-pin were identified, Neville was detained, and the wildest frenzy and fatuity of evil report arose against him. He was of that vindictive and violent nature that, but for his poor sister, who alone had influence over him, and out of whose sight he was never to be trusted, he would be in the daily commission of murder. 
Before coming to England he had caused to be whipped to death sundry natives, nomadic persons encamping now in Asia, now in Africa, now in the West Indies, and now at the North Pole, vaguely supposed in Cloisterham to be always black, always of great virtue, always calling themselves me, and everybody else massa or mercy, according to sex and always reading tracts of the obscurest meaning in broken English, but always accurately understanding them in the purest mother-tongue. He had nearly brought Mrs. Chris Sparkle's grey hairs with sorrow to the grave. These original expressions were Mr. Sapse's. He had repeatedly said he would have Mr. Chris Sparkle's life. He had repeatedly said he would have everybody's life, and become, in effect, the last man. He had been brought down to Cloisterham from London by an eminent philanthropist, and why? Because that philanthropist had expressly declared, I owe it to my fellow creatures that he should be, in the words of Bentham, where he is the cause of the greatest danger to the smallest number. These dropping shots from the blunderbusses of blunder-headedness might not have hit him in a vital place. But he had to stand against a trained and well-directed fire of arms of precision, too. He had notoriously threatened the lost young man, and had, according to the showing of his own faithful friend and tutor, who strove so hard for him, a cause of bitter animosity, created by himself and stated by himself, against that ill-starred fellow. He had armed himself with an offensive weapon for the fatal night, and he had gone off early in the morning, after making preparations for departure. He had been found with traces of blood on him. Truly, they might have been wholly caused as he represented, but they might not also. On a search warrant being issued for the examination of his room, clothes, and so forth, it was discovered that he had destroyed all his papers and rearranged all his possessions on the very afternoon of the disappearance. The watch found at the weir was challenged by the jeweller as one he had wound and set for Edwin Drood at twenty minutes past two on that same afternoon, and it had run down before being cast into the water, and it was the jeweller's positive opinion that it had never been rewound. This would justify the hypothesis that the watch was taken from him not long after he had left Mr. Jasper's house at midnight, in company with the last person seen with him, and that it had been thrown away after being retained some hours. Why thrown away? If he had been murdered and so artfully disfigured or concealed or both, as that the murderer hoped identification to be impossible, except from something that he wore, assuredly the murderer would seek to remove from the body the most lasting, the best known, and the most easily recognisable things upon it. These things would be the watch and shirt-pin. As to his opportunities of casting them into the river, if he were the object of these suspicions, they were easy for he had been seen by many persons wandering about on that side of the city, indeed on all sides of it, in a miserable and seemingly half-distracted manner. As to the choice of the spot, 
Obviously such criminating evidence had better take its chance of being found anywhere rather than upon himself or in his possession. Concerning the reconciliatory nature of the appointed meeting between the two young men, very little could be made of that in young Landless's favour, for it distinctly appeared that the meeting originated not with him, but with Mr. Crisparkle, and that it had been urged on by Mr. Crisparkle, and who could say how unwillingly, or in what ill-conditioned mood his enforced pupil had gone to it. The more his case was looked into, the weaker it became in every point. Even the broad suggestion that the lost young man had absconded was rendered additionally improbable on the showing of the young lady from whom he had so lately parted, for what did she say, with great earnestness and sorrow when interrogated, that he had expressly and enthusiastically planned with her that he should await the arrival of her guardian, Mr. Grugius, and yet, be it observed, he disappeared before that gentleman arrived. On the suspicions thus urged and supported, Neville was detained, and re-detained, and the search was pressed on every hand, and Jasper laboured night and day. But nothing more was found. No discovery being made which proved the lost man to be dead, it at length became necessary to release the person suspected of having made away with him. Neville was set at large. Then a consequence ensued which Mr. Crisparkle had too well foreseen. Neville must leave the place, for the place shunned him and cast him out. Even had it not been so, the dear old China shepherdess would have worried herself to death with fears for her son, and with general trepidation occasioned by their having such an inmate. Even had that not been so, the authority to which the minor canon deferred officially would have settled the point. "'Mr. Crisparkle,' quoth the dean, "'human justice may err, but it must act according to its lights.' The days of taking sanctuary are past. This young man must not take sanctuary with us. You mean that he must leave my house, sir? Mr. Crisparkle, returned the prudent dean, I claim no authority in your house. I merely confer with you on the painful necessity you find yourself under of depriving this young man of the great advantages of your counsel and instruction. "'It is very lamentable, sir,' Mr. Crisparkle represented. "'Very much so,' the dean assented. "'And if it be a necessity,' Mr. Crisparkle faltered. "'As you unfortunately find it to be,' returned the dean. Mr. Crisparkle bowed submissively. "'It is hard to prejudge his case, sir, but I am sensible that—' "'Just so perfectly.' "'As you say, Mr. Crisparkle,' interposed the dean, nodding his head smoothly, "'there is nothing else to be done. "'No doubt, no doubt, there is no alternative, as your good sense has discovered.' I am entirely satisfied of his perfect innocence, sir, nevertheless. Well, said the dean, in a more confidential tone, and slightly glancing around him, 
I would not say so generally, not generally. Enough of suspicion attaches to him to— No, I think I would not say so generally. Mr. Crisparkle bowed again. It does not become us, perhaps, pursued the dean, to be partisans, not partisans. We clergy keep our hearts warm and our heads cool, and we hold a judicious middle course. I hope you do not object, sir, to my having stated in public emphatically that he will reappear here whenever any new suspicion may be awakened, or any new circumstance may come to light in this extraordinary matter. Not at all, returned the dean. And yet, do you know, I don't think, with a very nice and neat emphasis on those two words, I don't think, I would state it emphatically. State it, yes, but emphatically, no, I think not. In point of fact, Mr. Crisparkle, keeping our hearts warm and our heads cool, we clergy need to do nothing emphatically. So Minor Canon Row knew Neville Landless no more, and he went whithersoever he would or could, with a blight upon his name and fame. It was not until then that John Jasper silently resumed his place in the choir. Haggard and red-eyed, his hopes plainly had deserted him, his sanguine mood was gone, and all his worst misgivings had come back. A day or two afterwards, while unrobing, he took his diary from a pocket of his coat, turned the leaves, and, with an impressive look, and without one spoken word, handed this entry to Mr. Crisparkle to read. My dear boy is murdered. The discovery of the watch and shirt-pin convinces me that he was murdered that night, and that his jewellery was taken from him to prevent identification by its means. All the delusive hopes I had founded on his separation from his betrothed wife I give to the winds. They perish before this fatal discovery. I now swear and record the oath on this page that I never more will discuss this mystery with any human creature until I hold the clue to it in my hand, that I never will relax in my secrecy or in my search, that I will fasten the crime of the murder of my dear dead boy upon the murderer, and that I devote myself to his destruction. End of chapter 16 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during the summer of 2008.